Chapter 12 The Pyramid of Boyhood Archetypes I want to see your fire, said the anima. My what? That sacred fire, where the intuition conspires. Beyond your individual desires, that fountain of spiritual fortune where bliss transpires, she said. Where? Make the offering right here, she said. Like an offering out of thin air? And we're going to burn our lower immature boy psychology away, she said. Is that who I am? It's where you began. But this is your way out of crisis in the masculine ritual process. Through this initiation, you will discover your truest self. And if you do this, it can bring great joy and bliss to everyone else, she said. She led me to three pyramids, and the third pyramid was a little smaller than the first two. Aligned with Orion's belt in the night sky, this land held three pyramids that the ancients allowed us to find. First, there was the Father's Pyramid, and slightly bigger than it was the one in the middle we call the Mother's. But what was this third pyramid? Was it an offering to our distant sisters and brothers? You are right that the first pyramid is the father's temple, and the second is the mother's great fortress from which all life began. Notice how this third one appears smaller for good reason, for it is the measure of man, said the anima. And what was within the measure of this man? For it felt like she had vision that I could not see. She talked about my highest self, which was an inner spirit. And who was this measure of someone within me, which I was fully capable to be? Compared to the masculine and feminine sources of creation, the measure of a man was smaller. But then who was I? No longer in hell, and maybe a hungry ghost. I was definitely a human who realized I had to die. You are dying. That lower nature must release and let go. All the clinging and grasping does nothing for us. It holds us back to the boy psychology, which the immature men replicate and know. But you? Grow! Show us our best. But first we'll need a stick and fire. If the real masculine ritual is to go on, we'll need magic, a death, and a transition to transpire, she said. I reached into the medicine bag and pulled out the medicine man's two flint stones. There I sat beneath the stars in the forest at night when I started to cultivate some smoke. Just as I always do, I built a little fire, and then I wrapped up herb and prepared it to toke. My ritual was an opening inside, like a portal into inner awareness, and this is where the anima became my ally, and there I was her witness. I lit the herbs wrapped in paper, and I took a breath in. And so the ritual process spread through me where I surrendered to the intuition within. I offer the smoke to you, my beloved. Now lead me and show me where we must go. Why has the measure of man gotten so battered and bruised? And if my old layers must die, then how will I let them go? The law behind any pyramid states that it begins with a single brick. This is the cornerstone, and now we are emerging to come into our fullness and reveal our innate magic. That is who we are, as this pyramid is the essence of our soul, 
and the higher self is like the pinnacle of the pyramid, as there are four sides of the boyhood pyramid that becomes the foundation to make a mature man whole, said the animal. I took a deep breath, and I think it was her who was opening up my heart and lungs. Now I sensed there was a force from beyond creation where none of us ever died and where all of us had existed before any of us had begun. What do you notice? she asked. I studied this pyramid. I too was the measure of one human man, and so I was curious about this structure's construction. The layers of this pyramid were based on a very complex plan. When I forget who I am and what I am here to do, I feel that my awareness enters into a crisis that drags my mind, emotions, and body toward a breakthrough. This crisis borders confusion and ignorance. And is this crisis the root of all suffering? This hellish state makes me desperate to remember my spiritual soul. Then the layers of my awareness emerge through stages of resurrecting. Aha! It's the resurrection we're talking about. Die to the old ways and see a new journey begin to sprout. Your dreams have called you into action. We must listen to what they have to say. The time is right to access and master your abilities. Do so with humility and control. The journey begins today, she said. The smoke grew and so did the requirements of what I was going through. As we started with the peak of the pyramid, she shaped me back into the four faces from top to bottom where the immature boy psychology hid and withdrew. Then she used my hand. There we reached into the medicine bag to have a look. Now I didn't know what we were reaching for, and there I pulled out a book. The title said King, Warrior, Magician, and Lover by Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette. Is this what I need? Open and read, she said. The first, the most primal, of the immature masculine energies is the Divine Child. We are all familiar with the Christian story of the birth of the baby Jesus. He is a mystery. He comes from the Divine Realm, born of a virgin woman. Miraculous things and events attend him. The star, worshipping shepherds, the three wise men from Persia. Surrounded by his worshippers, he occupies the central place not only in the stable, but in the universe. Even the animals attend to him. In pictures he radiates light. Haloed by the soft glistening straw he lies upon because he is God. He is almighty. But at the same time, he is totally vulnerable and helpless. No sooner is he born than the evil King Herod sniffs him out and seeks to kill him. He must be protected and spirited away to Egypt until he can be strong enough to begin his life's work and until the forces that would destroy him have spent their energy. What is not often realized is that this story does not stand alone. The religions of the world are rich with stories of the miraculous baby boy. The Christian story itself is molded in part on the story of the birth of the great Persian prophet Zoroaster, complete with miracles in nature, magi, and threats on his life. In Judaism, there's the story of baby Moses, born to be the deliverer of his people, to be the great teacher and mediator between God and human beings. He was raised as a prince of Egypt, and yet, in his first days, 
His life was threatened by an order from the Pharaoh, and he was placed helpless and vulnerable in a reed basket and set adrift on the Nile. The model for the story was a much older legend of the infancy of the great Mesopotamian king Sargon of Akkad. And from all over the world, we hear legends about the wondrous infancy of the baby Buddha, the baby Krishna, and the baby Dionysus. Even less known is the figure of the divine baby boy, universal in all religions. It is also universal inside ourselves. This can be seen from the dreams of men in psychoanalysis, who frequently, especially as they start to get better, dream about a baby boy who fills the dream with light and joy and a sense of wonder and refreshment. These events are signals that something new, creative, fresh, and innocent is being born within him. A new phase of his life is beginning. Creative parts of himself that had been unconscious are now thrust upwards into awareness. He experiences new life, but whenever the divine child within us makes itself known, attacks from Herod's within and without is not far behind. New life, including new psychological life, is always fragile. When we feel this new energy manifesting within us, we need to move to protect it, because it is going to be attacked. In Greek myths, we can see in Orpheus that the divine child is the archetypal energy that prefigures the mature masculine energy of the king. This man-god, Orpheus, sits at the center of the world, playing his lyre and singing a song that brings all animals of the forest to him. They are drawn by the song, Prey and Predator, and they come together around Orpheus in perfect harmony. Their differences resolve, all of the opposites brought together into the world transcending order. This theme of the divine child brings peace and order to the whole world, including the animal world, and it is not limited to ancient myths. This divine child archetype appears to be in the hard wiring of all of us. We seem to be born with it. It goes by many names and is evaluated by different schools and churches. The spiritual self is a vital aspect of the self, with a capital S, because it is different from the ego, which is the self with a small s. The divine child is the source of life and it possesses magical, empowering qualities, and getting in touch with it produces an enormous sense of well-being, enthusiasm for life, and great peace and joy, as it did for the young boy under the oak tree. There may be different schools or teachings, and I believe these two are right. They would pick up on two different aspects of the cornerstones built at the first face of this pyramid. One peak integrated and united. The others are the bottom corners of the shadow side. At the top of the triangular archetypal structure, we experience the divine child, who renews us and keeps us young at heart. We experience what we call the high chair tyrant and the weakling prince. Here we should consider where we form attachments. These are deep behaviors to our immature aspects. The first lower corner of the divine child, we discover the manifestation of the high chair tyrant. The high chair tyrant who is epitomized by the image of the little lord banging his spoon on the tray and screaming for his mother to feed him, kiss him, and attend to him. He is the center of the universe. Others exist to meet his all-powerful needs and desires. 
he expects the impossible of himself and berates himself when he can't meet the demands of the infant within, she said. And how can one escape the little lord? The only way to escape the little lord is to die. If this high chair tyrant cannot be brought under control, he will manifest as a Stalin or Hitler, all malignant sociopaths. The little lord is in his high chair and he is setting himself up to get the axe. Now this is the bottom corner of the first pyramid's face, and there is a ways to go. Because when we examine the face alone, it has another pole, or another lower corner. The other corner along this particular face is the weakling prince. These are active and passive poles, or positive and negative, and these are the aspects of one face of the boyhood pyramid that the bottom is comprised of. The weakling prince is another side of the bipolar shadow. This boy who is possessed by the weakling prince appears to have very little personality, no enthusiasm for life, and very little initiative. This is the boy who needs to be coddled, who dictates to those around him by his silent or his whining and complaining helplessness. He needs to be carried around on a pillow. Everything is too much for him. He rarely joins in children's games. He has few friends. He doesn't do well in school. He is frequently hypochondriacal. His slightest wish is his parents' command. The entire family system revolves around his comfort. He reveals the dishonesty of his helplessness. However, in his dagger-like verbal assaults on his siblings, his biting sarcasm directed against them, and his patent manipulation of their feelings. The weakling prince is the polar opposite of the high chair tyrant, and though he rarely shows tantrums of the tyrant, he nonetheless occupies a less easily detachable throne. As in this case, with all bipolar disorders, the ego possessed by one pole will, from time to time, gradually slide or suddenly jump over to the other pole. Using the imagery of bipolar magnetism to describe this phenomenon, we can say that the polarity of magnets reverses depending on the direction of an electrical current passing through it. When such reversals occur in the boy caught in the bipolar shadow of the divine child, he will switch from tyrannical outbursts to depressed passivity, or form apparent weaknesses to rageful displays. The key is to access the divine child appropriately, and so we need to acknowledge him, but not identify with him. We need to love and admire the creativity and beauty of the primal aspect of the masculine self. Because if we don't have this connection with him, we are never going to see the possibilities in life. We are never going to seize opportunities for newness and freshness. Whether an activist, artist, administrator, or teacher, everyone in leadership capacity needs to be connected with the creative, playful child in order to manifest his full potential and advance his cause, his company, and his creativity in himself and others. Connection with this archetype keeps us from feeling washed up, bored, and unable to see the abundance of human potential all around us. We ourselves have not encountered many men who identify with their creativity. Rather, they usually need to get in touch with it. We want to encourage greatness in men. We want to encourage ambition. We believe that nobody really wants to be a sort of gray normal. 
that the ancient Romans believed that every human baby is born with what they called his or her genius, or a guardian spirit assigned to them at birth. They believed a birthday party was not held to honor the individual, but to honor the person's genius, or that divine being that came into the world with him or her. The Romans knew that it was not the man's ego that was the source of his music, his art, his statecraft, or his courageous deeds. It was the divine child, an aspect of the higher self within him. We need to ask ourselves two questions. The first one is not whether or not we manifest the high chair tyrant or the weakling prince, but how. Because we all manifest both to some extent and in some form, she said. Oh boy, especially me. At the very least, we all do this when we regress into our child when we are fatigued or extremely frightened. The second question is not whether that creative child exists in us, but how are we honoring him or her? If we are not feeling him or her in our personal lives and work, then we have to ask ourselves, how are we blocking him or her? Said the anima. This inner whisper led me to stand up and walk past the first face of the pyramid, and then we approached the second side. Why now it was obvious that there were four faces in which this pyramid was fortified. Next is the precocious child. And so I want you to imagine a wonderful statue of the ancient Egyptian magician Imhotep as a boy. Imhotep sits on a little throne reading a scroll. His face is gentle and thoughtful, but alive with wit and inner glow. His eyes look down at the written word that he holds so reverently in his hands. His posture shows grace, poise, concentration, and self-confidence. Not a true portrait. This statue is really an image of the archetype of the precocious child. This precocious child manifests in a boy when he is eager to learn, when his mind is quickened, when he wants to share what he is learning with others. There's a glint in his eyes, an energy of body and mind that shows he is adventuring into the world of ideas. This boy, who later becomes a man, wants to know the why of everything. He asks his parents, why is the sky blue? Why do leaves fall? And why do things have to die? He wants to know how of all things, the what and the where. He often learns to read at an early age so he can answer his own questions. He is usually a good student and an eager participant in classroom discussions. Often this boy is also talented in one or more areas. He may be able to draw and paint well, or play a musical instrument with proficiency. He may also be good at sports. The precocious child is the source of so-called child prodigies. The precocious child is the origin of our curiosity and our adventurous impulses. He urges us to be explorers and pioneers of the unknown, the strange and the mysterious. He causes us to wonder at the world around us and the world inside of us. He wants to know what makes other people tick as well and what makes himself tick. He wants to know why people act the way they do and why he has the feelings he does. He tends to be introverted and reflective and he is able to see hidden connections and things. He can achieve cognitive detachment from the people around him long before his peers are able to accomplish this. Though introverted and reflective, 
he is also extroverted and eagerly reaches out to others to share his insights and talents with them. He often experiences a powerful urge to help others with his knowledge, and his friends often come to him for a shoulder to cry on, as well as for help with their schoolwork. The precocious child in a man keeps his sense of wonder and curiosity alive, stimulates his intellect, and moves him in the direction of the mature magician," said the anima. So you're saying these boyhood archetypes are the ground or the base for the mature masculine archetypes? That's right. But the bipolar shadows of the precocious child, like all the shadow forms of the archetypes of the immature masculine, can be carried over into adulthood, where it causes would-be men to manifest inappropriate infantilism in their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. The know-it-all trickster, as the name implies, is the immature masculine energy that plays tricks of a more or less serious nature in one's own life and on others. He is an expert at creating appearances and then tricking us on those appearances. He seduces people into believing him, and he pulls the rug out from under them. He gets us to believe in him, to trust him, and then he betrays us and laughs at our misery. He leads us to a paradise in the jungle, only to serve us a feast of cyanide. He's always looking for a sucker. He is the practical joker, an adept at making fools of us. He is a manipulator. The know-it-all is the aspect of the trickster in a boy or man that enjoys intimidating others. The boy under the power of the know-it-all shoots off his mouth a lot. He's always got his hand up in the class, not because he wants to participate in the discussion, but because he wants his classmates to understand that he is more intelligent than they are. He wants to trick them into believing that, but the boy possessed by the know-it-all does not limit his exaggerated precociousness to intellectual showmanship. He may be a know-it-all about any subject or activity. The boy or man under the power of the know-it-all makes many enemies. He is verbally abusive of others, whom he regards as his inferiors. He depreciates those who don't know what he knows, or who hold opinions that differ from his. Because the trickster is the umbrella complex under which the know-it-all operates, the man caught in the infantile influence is deceiving others, and himself as well, about the depths of his knowledge or the level of his importance. But he also has a positive side. He is very good at deflating egos, our own and those of others, and often we need deflating. He can spot in an instant when, and in exactly what way, we are inflated and identified with our grandiosity. And he goes for it, in order to reduce us to the human size and to expose all of our frailties. This was the role of the fool in the king's courts of medieval Europe. When everyone else at a great ceremony adored the king, and the king himself was beginning to adore the king, the fool would caper into the middle of the ceremonies and fart. He was saying, don't get inflated. All of us here are only human beings, no matter what status we accord to each other. Jesus in the Bible calls Satan the father of lies, thus identifying Satan with the trickster in his negative aspect. However, in a roundabout way, the Bible also shows Satan, the trickster, in a positive light 
though most of us have probably missed this. The story of Job, for instance, depicts a relationship of mutual respect between Job and God. God has given Job great wealth and material security, health, and a large family. Job, for this part, never ceases to praise God. It's a mutual admiration society. Then comes Satan, sniffing out the hypocrisy in the whole thing. He's a troublemaker, for the sake of truth. His idea is that if God curses Job, Job will eventually stop singing the Lord's praises. God doesn't want to believe Satan, but he goes along with the plan. Possibly instinctively knowing that Satan is right, and he is. Once God has taken away everything Job had, his family, his wealth, his health, Job finally throws up his superficial piety, shakes his fists at God, and rips him up one side and down the other. God responds by intimidating Job. Even in the story of the Garden of Eden, Satan is said to make trouble for the sake of exposing the fraudulent and delusional nature of the supposedly good creation. God wanted to believe that he had made everything good, but then after all, he made evil and hung it on the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Satan, in the form of the serpent, was determined to expose the shadow side of this all-good creation. He succeeded through the fall of Adam and Eve. Only after Satan had exposed the evil in creation and by implication in the Creator could honesty and healing begin. There is the aspect of the trickster that isolates us and leaves us feeling powerless. Only by studying the Native American Heoki portrayal of the tricksters can we free ourselves of this compulsive and self-destructive behavior. Perhaps the most familiar trickster in the Bible is the story of Jacob and Esau and how Jacob got Esau's birthright through selling him a bowl of soup. Jacob tricked his older brother into giving up all his rightful status and wealth as their heir to their father's throne. Through manipulation, he took what was not his. We clearly need to understand this immature energy, though its purpose and its positive mode seems to expose lies. If it is left unchecked, it moves into its negative side and becomes destructive of oneself and others. For the negative side of this immature masculine energy is really hostile and depreciating of all the real effort, all the right, all the beauty of others. The trickster, like the high chair tyrant, does not want to do anything himself. He does not want to honestly learn anything. He just wants to be, and to be what he has no right to be. He is, in psychological language, passive-aggressive. This is an energy form that seeks the fall of great men that delights in the destruction of a man of importance. But the trickster does not want to replace the man who has fallen. He does not want to take up that man's responsibility. In fact, he does not want any responsibilities. He wants to do just enough to wreck things for others. The tricksters cause a boy to have an authority problem. Such a boy can always find a man to hate him and eventually shoot him down. He will readily believe that all men of power are corrupt and abusive, but like the man possessed by the weakling prince, he is condemned forever to be on the outskirts of life, never able to take responsibility for himself or his actions. His energy comes from envy. The less a man is in touch with his true talents and abilities, 
the more he will envy others. If we envy a lot, we are denying our own realistic greatness, our own divine child. What we need to do then is to get in touch with our own specialness, our own beauty, and our own creativity. Envy blocks creativity. The trickster is the archetype that rushes in to fill the vacuum in the immature man or boy left by the boy's denial of and lack of connection with the divine child. The trickster gets activated developmentally within us when we have become depreciated or emotionally abused. If we don't feel our real specialness, we will come under the influence of the trickster, the know-it-all, and deflate others' sense of their specialness even when such deflation is not called for. The know-it-all trickster has no heroes, because to have heroes is to admire others. We can only admire others if we have a sense of our own worthiness and a developing sense of security about our own creative energies. As every face of a pyramid has a single peak, there are two bottom corners. And so the other pole of the dysfunctional shadow of the precocious child is the naive dummy. And like the weakling prince, lacks personality, vigor, and creativity. He seems unresponsive and dull. He can't seem to learn his multiplication tables, count change, or tell time. He is frequently labeled a slow learner. In addition, he lacks a sense of humor and frequently seems to miss the point of jokes. He may appear to be physically inept as well. His coordination is off, so he often becomes the butt of ridicule and contempt when he fumbles the ball on playing the field or strikes out. This boy may also appear to be naive. He is, or seems to be, the last kid on the block to learn about the birds and the bees. The dummy's ineptitude, however, is frequently less than honest. He may grasp far more than he shows, and his dunce-like behavior may mask a hidden grandiosity that feels itself too important, as well as too vulnerable, to come into the world. Thus, intimately intertwined with a secret know-it-all. The dummy is also a trickster, said the anima. Now she guided me over to the third side of the pyramid, which appeared no different from the first two sides, other than the fact that it faced a different direction. All the boyhood, or immature, masculine energies are overly tied, one way or another, to the mother, and are deficient in their experience of the nurturing and mature masculine. The pinnacle of this third face is the Oedipal child. Although the boy for whom the Oedipal child is a powerful archetypal influence may be deficient in his experience of the nurturing masculine, he is able to access the positive qualities of this archetype. He is passionate and has a sense of wonder and deep appreciation for connectedness within his inner depths with all others and with all things. He is warm, related, and affectionate. He also expresses, through his experience of connectedness to the mother, the origins of what we can call spirituality. His sense of mystic oneness and mutual communion of all things comes out of his deep yearning for the infinitely nurturing, infinitely good, and infinitely beautiful mother. This mother might not be his real, mortal mother. This mother that he is sensing could be beyond his own beyond all the beauty and feeling. And this is what the Greeks called Eros in the things of the world. 
and that he is experiencing in the deep feelings and images of his inner life is the Great Mother, the Goddess, in her many forms in the myths and legends of many people and cultures. At the corners of this pyramid's face, the Oedipal child's shadow, sis of the mama's boy and the dreamer. The mama's boy, as we know it, is tied to the mama's apron strings. This archetype causes a boy to fantasize about marrying his mother, about taking her away from his father. If there is no father, or a weak father, this so-called Oedipal urge comes on all the stronger, and this crippling side, the Oedipal child's bipolar shadow may possess him. Something else happens to the mama's boy. Here he gets caught up in chasing the beautiful, the poignant, the yearning for union with the mother from one woman to another. He can never be satisfied with a mortal woman, because what he is seeking is the immortal goddess. Here we have the Don Juan syndrome. The Oedipal child, inflated beyond mortal dimensions, cannot be bound to one woman. In addition, the boy under the power of the mama's boy is what we call autoerotic. He may compulsively masturbate. He may be into pornography, seeking the goddess in nearly infinite forms of the female body. He is seeking to experience his masculinity, his phallic power. But instead of affirming his own masculinity as a mortal being, he is really seeking to experience the penis of God, the great phallus that experiences all women, or rather that experiences union with the mother goddess in her infinity of female forms. Caught up in masturbation and the compulsive use of pornography, the mama's boy, like all immature energies, just wants to be. He does not want to do what it takes to actually have union with a mortal woman and to deal with all the complex feelings involved in an intimate relationship. He does not want to take responsibility. The other pole of the dysfunctional shadow of the Oedipal child is the dreamer. The dreamer takes the spiritual impulses of the Oedipal child to an extreme, whereas the boy possessed by the mama's boy also shows signs of passivity. He at least actively seeks the mother. The dreamer, however, causes a boy to feel isolated and cut off from all human relationships. For the boy who is under the spell of the dream, relationships are with intangible things and with the world of the imagination within him. As a consequence, while other children are playing, he may sit on a rock, dreaming about his dreams. He accomplishes little and appears withdrawn and depressed. Often his dreams tend to be melancholy on one hand, or highly idyllic and ethereal on the other. The boy possessed by the dreamer, like a boy possessed by some of the other shadow poles, is less than honest. Though his dishonesty is usually unconscious, his isolated, ethereal behavior may mask the hidden and opposite pole of the Oedipal child's shadow, the mama's boy. What this boy really shows, in a roundabout way, is his temper at failing to achieve possession of the mother. His grandiosity in seeking to possess the mother lies hidden under the dreamer's depression, said the animal. Now she led me to the fourth and final face of the pyramid. Again it was just like the others, and so she began to explain this face, starting with the pinnacle. The pinnacle of this last face of the boyhood pyramid is the hero, and there is much confusion 
about the archetype of the hero. It is generally assumed that the heroic approach to life or to a task is the noblest, but that is only partly true. The hero is, in fact, the only advanced form of boy psychology, the most advanced form, the peak, actually, of the masculine energies of the boy. It is the archetype that characterizes the best in the adolescent stage of development, yet it is immature. And when it is carried over into adulthood as the governing archetype, it blocks men from full maturity. When we examine the hero's two cornerstones of polarity, we know them as the grandstander, or the bully, and the coward, and these negative aspects become more clear. The boy under the power of the bully intends to impress others. His strategies are designed to proclaim his superiority and his right to dominate those around him. If ever his claims to special status are challenged, watch the ensuing rageful displays. He will assault those who question what they smell as his inflation with vicious verbal and often physical abuse. These attacks against others are often aimed at staving off recognition of his underlying cowardice and his deep insecurity. The man under the influence of this negative aspect of the hero is not a team player. He is a loner. He's a hotshot junior executive, salesman, or stock market manipulator. He's the soldier who takes unnecessary risk in combat, and if he's in a position of leadership, requires the same of his men. The idea is reflected in the heroic young officers bucking for promotion, often requiring their men to risk their lives in combat in a sense of brave gestures. Some of these officers end up killed for the sake of their inflated heroic attitudes. As in the case with the other immature masculine archetypes, the hero is overly tied to the mother, but the hero has a driving need to overcome her. He is locked in mortal combat with the feminine, striving to conquer and to assert his masculinity. In the medieval legends about heroes and damsels, we are seldom told what happens once the hero has slain the dragon and married the princess. We don't hear about what has happened in their marriage, because the hero, as an archetype, doesn't know what to do with the princess once he's won her. He doesn't know what to do when things return to normal. The hero's downfall is that he doesn't know and is unable to acknowledge his own limitations. A boy or man under the power of the shadow hero cannot really realize that he is a mortal being. Denial of death, the ultimate limitation on human life, is his specialty. Examining this connection, we might think about the heroic nature of our Western culture. Its main business seems to be, as it is often said, the conquest of nature, its uses and manipulation. Pollution and environmental catastrophe are the increasingly obvious penalties for such a brash and immature project. The field of medicine operates on the usually unspoken assumption that disease, or eventually death itself, can be eliminated. Our modern world views has serious difficulty facing human limitations. When we do not face our true limitations, we are inflated, and sooner or later, our inflations will be called into account. The other pole of the hero's bipolar shadow is the boy possessed by the coward, 
who shows an extreme reluctance to stand up for himself in physical confrontations. He will usually run away from a fight, perhaps excusing himself by claiming that it is manlier to walk away. He will tend to allow himself to be bullied emotionally and intellectually as well. When someone else is demanding or forceful with him, the boy under the power of the coward, unable to feel heroic about himself, will cave in. He will easily submit to pressure from others. He will feel invaded and turn over like a doormat. When he has enough of this, however, the hidden grandiosity of the grandstander bully will erupt and launch a violent verbal or physical assault upon his enemy. Oh, Anima, your words are wise and my ego is oh so fragile. Everything you've explained is ingrained within me as well as the world. Now what is the point when I hear your words and feel my own self-worth unravel? You speak of the archetypes of boyhood, which relate to the immature man. But what about the archetypes of the immature girl and issues surrounding the mature woman? Just as there are archetypes in man, there is also a foundation of what it means to be a woman. The book for this is titled, Women Who Run With The Wolves, by Clarissa Estes. I speak in truth when I say that in the modern day, it can be difficult to locate mature men and mature women. In today's world, women will gladly look for abortions, killing their offspring with selfishness and are detached from the mature aspects as they descend to their own bipolar shadows thereof. Everything we explained in boyhood is mirrored in that of girlhood as well. The same foundation of the pyramid exists for both women and man, including the bipolar shadows we wish to dispel," she said. There was a pause while I stepped back to examine the structure of this profound pyramid. So many truths had been uncovered, but the path to the mature masculine seemed so difficult to balance, and so I remained disheartened. Breathe, my son. There is nothing to fear. Let me explain why I have explained this truth. There is a reason we've arrived right here. By having described the negative or shadow aspects, we have to ask ourselves why the hero is present in our psyches at all. Why is this a part of our personal development as history of men? What is the evolutionary adaptation that it serves? What the hero does is mobilize the boy's delicate ego structures to enable him to break with the mother at the end of boyhood and face the difficult task that life is beginning to assign to him. The hero energies call upon the boy's masculine reserves, which will be refined as he matures in order to establish his inner dependence and his competence for him to be able to experience his own budding abilities, to push him outside of the envelope and test himself against the difficult, even hostile forces in the world. The hero enables him to establish a position against the overwhelming power of the unconscious, much of which enables the boy to begin to assert himself and define himself as distinct from all others, so that ultimately, as a distinct being, he can relate to them fully and creatively. The hero throws the boy up against the limits, against the seemingly intractable. It encourages him to dream the impossible dream that might just be possible after all. And if he has enough courage, 
It empowers him to fight the unbeatable foe that, if he is not possessed by the hero, he might just be able to defeat. In this world, people in power and authority attack, whether knowingly or unknowingly, the shining of the hero in our men. Ours is not the age that wants heroes. Ours is the age of envy, in which laziness and self-involvement are the rule. Anyone who tries to shine, who dares to stand above the crowd, is dragged back down by his lackluster and self-appointed peers. What we need is a great rebirth of the heroic in our world. Every sector of human society, whether that may be on the planet, seems to be slipping into unconscious chaos. Only the heroic consciousness, exerting all its might, will be able to stop the slide toward oblivion. Only a massive rebirth of courage in both men and women will rescue the world. Against enormous odds, the hero picks up his words and charges into the heart of the abyss, into the mouth of the dragon, into the castle under the power of an evil spell. And what is the end of the hero? In the legend and myth, the hero dies, and he is transformed into a god, and related into heaven. We recall the story of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, or Oedipus' final disappearance into the flash at Colonus, or Elijah's ascent into the sky in a fiery chariot. The death of the hero is the death of boyhood, or boy psychology and it is the birth of manhood and man-psychology. The death of the hero in the life of a boy really means that he has finally encountered his limitations. He has met the enemy, and the enemy is himself. He has met his own dark side, his very unheroic side. He has fought the dragon and been burned by it. He has fought the revolution and drunk the dregs of his own inhumanity. He has overcome the mother, then realized his incapacity to love the princess. The death of the hero signals a boy or a man's encounter with his true humility. In the end, it is the end of his heroic consciousness. True humility, we believe, consists of two things. The first is knowing our own limitations, and the second is getting the help we need. If we access the hero energy appropriately, we will push ourselves up against our limitations. We will adventure to the frontiers of what we can be as boys. And from there, if we can make the transition, we will be prepared for our initiation into manhood. Said the anima. O great spirit, then I do not dare ask, who am I? But still, I must ask, where am I? You are dying to the boy you once were. And so you are being reborn as the mature masculine who answers the spiritual self's call, she said. The more I heard the anima explain, the more I felt an urge to escape with the hungry ghosts and get myself a much-needed smoke or drink. Understand that as the anima, I can hear everything everyone thinks. To drink is a craving for boyhood psychology. Same with smoke, as we dissociate with reality hoping the outer and inner problems might just go away. But what the alcohol and smoke does is it represses the mature masculine hoping that the world's problems will stay at bay. It can be medicine, but it can be poison. It is a great debate, but we are letting go 
of all attachments in the notion. Of course, our yearnings will arise after we repress them. It becomes more urgent than before. The longer we avoid our attachments, the more likely they turn up as an unending chore. Alcohol is a low vibration that turns men into boys, and so they descend into the immature boyhood psychology as they turn unconscious, sometimes aggressive, and often make mindless conversation and noise. On the other hand, I do prefer smoke, since it is the breath that I believe in, because it connects us to our spiritual voice. I am her, and with smoke, there are magic mushrooms, LSD, and other herbal and medicinal remedies that allows you access into internal pathways to heal your inner boy. If you discover that drugs or alcohol can guide pathways for real healing, then I believe they too can be good. For it is possible that these substances can unlock mature masculine potential. But all in all, a real mature man knows when to give up his old patterns, said the animal.